don't you turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, and we're going to pray over these needs here in just a moment. But I want to read our text tonight, and I want to say again how excited I am to be in the house of the Lord with you. Man, I've missed it. We don't we don't cancel often around here, and uh, I I don't even know how many times in in almost 14 years we've had to cancel. Uh, but it felt weird, amen. I mean, it felt odd, you know, sitting there not not being in church. And uh, so, I, man, I'm just excited to be back here with you, amen. All right, First Corinthians chapter number four, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number nine. First Corinthians chapter number four, verse number nine. We'll read down verse number 17, and then I want to read one verse from another chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. Notice that phrase. He said, We're made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. He says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. Now, why would Paul say all that? Is he just complaining? No. Listen to what he says. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, I want you to look with me at one verse in chapter 11, the very first verse. Paul says this, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God, Lord. It's such a, a blessing to get to be here tonight. Often we don't know what we miss until it's gone from us. Lord, we just treasure this opportunity to gather with your people to gain encouragement, to hear from your word, for you to work in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And I pray that you'd help us tonight, Lord, as we approach your word. May our hearts be open to the truth and the authority of it. May none of us bow up, Lord. May none of us seek to shift the message to another. But may we all see ourselves squarely as the target of the truth of your word tonight, endeavoring and 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 excited for you to work in us and to speak to us. Lord, I do pray for these requests that have been given. Lord, I know they're going to get prayed over a lot more than what I am in this moment. Lord, undoubtedly by some that are a lot more apt to be praying for them than even I am. But Lord, I just pray that you'd meet each request according to thy will. Lord, it's not just the moments that were taken to to scribble these down on cards. But Lord, these are real issues in the lives of the people who have pinned them down. I pray that you'd bear them up, Lord, to your throne. I pray that you'd administer your perfect will in these matters. Give us faith and give us patience as we see your will done in these things. Now, Lord, we consecrate this service to you tonight. And may Christ be magnified in all that's said and done. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. In our text tonight, Paul says something that is very out of keeping with much of what we hear, both in society and culture, but even within the context of the local church today. 
Paul makes this statement in chapter number four. Now, he's been talking about himself, the suffering he's experienced, the things that he's given for Christ, but also that he's given for those believers to whom he is writing. And he tells them, I'm not doing this to shame you. I'm not complaining, nor am I trying to make you feel guilty over the things that I've done in in your life. But he says, the reason that I'm telling you these things is because God has appointed me to be an example unto you. And I want you to understand what if you live for Jesus Christ, you can expect. He says, I've told you these things because though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, he says, yet have ye not many fathers. You stop and think about the difference and the distinction between an instructor and a father. An instructor is someone that imparts knowledge to somebody. It is someone that often in an academic setting will communicate to somebody certain truths that they should embrace and apply in their lives. Now, is a father an instructor? Well, of course, a father is an instructor. He ought to be. We ought to be as fathers actively teaching our children things. And I'll tell you that if you're not actively uh, teaching them, the devil is actively teaching them. And society is actively teaching them. They are being indoctrinated in and initiated into the cult of culture. If you're not actively going out of your way to instruct them and teach them in truth. But a father is not merely an instructor. A a father is somebody that not only imparts knowledge and truth to his children, but he is also someone that illustrates knowledge and truth to his children. In other words, a teacher might simply tell you what is right, but a father is going to show you what is right. And Paul's saying to them, I'm telling you these things that you might look at my life and the example of it and learn truth thereby. And he then makes this statement in verse 16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye therefore followers of me. I'll tell you one of the things we hear a lot of in our day and age. We hear a lot of people speak in a very denigrating way towards the notion of following a man. Oftentimes they'll say things like, well, I don't follow men, I just follow the Lord. They'll say, well, I don't follow men, I just do what I believe is correct and what I believe is right. Or they'll say, well, I don't follow men, but I just read my Bible and follow it the best that I understand. Now, while I will say this, there have certainly been lives that have been shipwrecked because people followed men. If we're going to have a biblical perspective on all matters, then we also should have a biblical perspective on the notion of examples in our life and what our proper relationship should be towards them. One of the tenets of the American ideal, and I don't say this in any way to disparage America or the American ideal. But one of the things that has always been common in our cultural psyche is the notion of rugged individualism. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to go my direction. I don't need anybody. I'm not looking to anybody and I'm not following anybody. I'm the master of my own destiny. And while I will say that certainly in a political context, there is much nobility to that. And certainly while in a societal context, there is probably much safety in that, that as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has provided us with people in our life that might help to guide our lives to safeguard us against danger. And while there is a sense in which it is certainly true that we shouldn't follow anybody but Christ, it's interesting that Paul says, God has given me in your life so that I might show you what following Christ looks like. I'll preach to you on this thought tonight. I don't expect it to be very popular, to be honest with you. 
But the idea of being a follower of Paul, or as he said, be ye followers of me. Now, let me begin by noticing some things about the church to whom he wrote this. One of the reasons people would often say, when I preach, I don't need anyone's advice. I don't need anyone's counsel. I don't need anybody to teach me is because they would often suggest that the reason they don't need that is, in fact, they have life figured out already all on their own. Uh, really, it is a declaration of pride. And I'll go ahead and say to you tonight, you may have it all figured out. And I'd sure love if you'd teach that to me because I sure enough don't have it all figured out. And you may have figured out a way to do things better than anyone else has figured out. But I will readily admit that, listen, God, if he can use people in my life to counsel me, direct me and guide me in his word, in his will and in his way, I will be thereby benefited and all the better for it. Probably there were some at Corinth that would have said, well, now, Paul, who are you to tell us what to do? We know what we're doing. But when we read the first epistle to the church of Corinth, we learn pretty readily they didn't have a clue what they were doing in this matter of the Christian life. It's always been interesting to me that the charismatics will often run to the church at Corinth and say, well, we're just trying to be like the church at Corinth. Because if you read in the catalog of New Testament epistles, there's probably not a church more messed up than the Corinthian church. I mean, they were not what we would call a healthy church. In fact, I would note three things before we get into our text tonight. Look with me in chapter number five. We hear one of Paul's main charges that he lays against this church and what is really at the heart of much of the counsel that he's giving in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 5.1. He says, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you And such fornication as is not named so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Now you say, well, preacher, people mess up and a good church can have people that do wicked and vile and depraved things within it. I I would agree that's true. Uh, You know, we don't so we we, uh, people we probably ought to have to have a background check, a credit check and maybe an IQ test before we let people join. But we don't. And so there's no telling what people might do. And you say, well, preacher. How are they to blame? Well, it wasn't that somebody that went to their church messed up. Notice what he says next, verse 2. He says, and ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. He said, it's not so much that somebody messed up, it's that you're not bothered by it. He said, instead of your heart being broken and y'all stopping and saying, where did we go wrong? Something messed up here. We need to get along with God. We need to pray. We need to ask God to either deliver this brother or remove this brother one way or the other because we can't tolerate this sin in our body. Instead, they puffed up. And they said, well, who are you to tell us what to do? And Paul says this in verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not the little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. He says, the problem is it's affecting all of you. Let me say, number one, Corinth was a deeply corrupt church. It was a compromised church. Now, undoubtedly, it was a church of compromise. But really, Paul is not even necessarily laying charges concerning their doctrine in this statement. He talks about it elsewhere. But he's saying, you have tolerated things that even the pagans won't tolerate. You know, here's the reality. Here's part of the reason you and I need godly examples in our life. Because oftentimes, if not, if left under our own devices, we will in our own pride puff ourselves up and justify all manner of wickedness in our life. You know why we're sometimes bothered by being surrounded by people that are living for Christ? is because it reminds us that we're not. 
And Paul says, you need to look at my life and see that the way you're behaving is not appropriate and is not acceptable. Now, not only was Corinth a deeply corrupt or compromised church, but look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able. Paul says, I wish I could speak stronger to you, but you couldn't bear it. He says, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Now, you could read on for context's sake, but Paul, in these short verses, he communicates that they are a childish infantile, naive, carnal body of believers. He says, y'all are fussing about things and being distracted over things and allowing yourself to be divided into cliques and partisanship over personalities in the body of Christ when really this thing is not about Paul and it's not about Apollos and it's not about Cephas. It's all about Jesus Christ. You see, you say, well, preacher, why do they need somebody like Paul to show them how to live the Christian life? Because Paul was the only one that had a right perspective amongst them. He understood what it was all about. And he's trying to tell them, hey, listen, you say you've got it all figured out, but all it is is fighting and infighting and squabbling and division amongst you. I would say this, that Corinth was a divisively carnal church. But then look with me at chapter number 14. We'll read two verses there. And I'm almost done with the introduction to my introduction, so don't, don't get nervous. <laughs> but look at verse number 26. Paul says this to them. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? He says, let all things be done unto edifying. Down in verse 33, he said, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. He said, you know, I've noticed a funny thing. He said, every time we ask if God has any, you know, if anybody has anything from the Lord on their heart, all y'all got things from the Lord on your heart, is what he says. He said, it's funny, when we ask if God is doing a work through somebody, all of a sudden God's doing a work through everybody. And he says, it has in this church turned into bedlam and into chaos. I remember when I was growing up, my pastor used to tell a story about a man that came in on one Sunday evening. And uh, he looked at my pastor and he, he stood up, he said, uh, Dr. Bevington, I'm here to preach tonight. And Brother Bob looked at him and said, no, you're not. <laughs> and he said, I am. He said, I received a message from the Lord. And he told me to come down here and to preach to your people at Knoxville Baptist Tabernacle. And Brother Bob looked at him and said, well, that's funny. He didn't say a thing to me. Sit down. <laughs> I, now, listen, I'm not trying to be snotty. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be a cynic. But Paul himself is saying, how is it? He's saying, how is it possible that God is honored by the confusion that is so prevalent in, in, your, in the body of Christ, in, in your church? He says it just does not make sense. And, of course, this will lead into a greater discussion that Paul has about tongues and about their function, about their office in the New Testament church and what that means. And much could be gained from spending time looking at that study. But I just want to notice this, that they were a church that did not have all of their ideals and beliefs in proper order. We could say it this way, that Corinth 
was a deeply compromised church. It was a divisively carnal church, but it was also a doctrinally confused church. Preacher, why would I need somebody to teach me? Because you don't know it all. Just like I don't know it all. Preacher, how dare you think I don't have it all figured out? Well, here's the truth. Ain't none of us got it all figured out. And when we position and puff ourselves up such that we would say, nobody can tell me, guess what? We ain't going to get much help. Paul writes to them in the context of all of this exhortation is he's writing to a deeply broken church. And he's saying, you guys are missing the point. You're going to have to learn how to find godly examples and follow them in your life. Here's the truth of the matter. You need godly examples in your life. I need godly examples in my life. And if I'm too prideful and too arrogant and too puffed up to be willing to see that God could be in the life of another person doing things and illustrating things that I need for my own Christian walk, then the likelihood of me making shipwreck of my faith and a mess of my family and a wreck of my testimony is all the greater. I know we live in a world that say, preacher, well, I ain't going to follow no man. Well, what does Paul say about that? Let's get a good biblical perspective. Look with me at verse number 1 of chapter 11. i got three simple things I want to say, and then I'll be done. Paul says this, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. What does that immediately suggest to you and I? Well, it suggests two things. It suggests that there is a large principle that Paul is communicating. And that large principle is this, that it is biblical and appropriate to follow godly example. That the notion that somehow to see the testimony of Christ in a person's life and to admire that and want to emulate that, the notion that that is somehow a second tier Christianity is not biblical. But that in fact there is a biblical precedent for the importance of surrounding ourselves with people that have a testimony for Christ and simply asking this question, I see what you're doing for Christ. I want to learn to do what you're doing. I remember being a young preacher and seeking out pastors that I admired their ministry. I used to, and I've not done this in years. Of course, for years now, we've had mostly the same guys come preach for us. But in the early years of pastoring, when I would have an evangelist come into the church, I would always ask them two questions. I would ask them these questions at the beginning of the week. And I would say, I don't want you to give me your answer until the meeting is almost over. And the first question was always this. I want you to name me ten or five or however many you can think of books that transformed your life and ministry. That if you were to point someone and say, if you don't ever read any other book other than the Bible, then be sure you read these books. I learned one, a lot of guys don't read. But number two, I asked this question. I would say, I want you to tell me at the end of the week, if you see anything in our church and the way that we do things and the way that we minister, that I might have cultivated a blind spot towards that I'm simply not seeing, that could in some way enrich the experience of going to Wall Ridge Baptist Church. I don't mean survey our statement of faith. I don't mean tell me what sermons ought to preach. I mean things like, hey, it'd be better if that flower was put over here. Hey, it'd be better if that door was left open. Hey, it'd be better if you had these paper towels in the bathroom. Whatever it might be, some small thing that we might implement that might in some way help and bless our church. I got some good things out of that. I got some bad things out of that. I got a bunch of nothing out of that from a lot of guys. 
But I found this to be healthy in my life, that if I can find people that are successful at living for Christ, not as defined by the amount of followers they have or the scope or spectrum of their ministry, but by the purity of their testimony and the faithfulness of their character, if I can find men like that and try to find out what they're doing for Jesus Christ and apply that to my life, I will have purchased a mountain of wisdom unto myself. And that's what Paul is communicating. He says there is a large principle here that you don't have to figure everything out. There's a lot of people that God has already figured it out in their life and you can learn if you will look to their life as an example for your own. I would say, number two, not only is there a large principle here, but there is also a limiting principle here. He says, be ye followers of me. But it doesn't stop there. He says, even as I also am of Christ. Tells me this, that a man can be greatly helped by following other men. Or a man can be greatly hurt by following other men. And wisdom from the word of God teaches us the distinction and how to guard ourselves against it. I want you to notice three things here tonight and then I'll be done. Notice number one in our text here, this only verse, single verse here in uh, chapter number 11 that we've noticed. Number one, there is a guiding principle. Paul says, you can look at my life and my ministry and you can learn some things about what it means to live for Jesus Christ. Now, while I shudder to think that I might ever be considered an example for somebody, I am struck and smitten by the fact that I should seek out people in my life who can be an example to me. And Paul, with, I believe, sincere humility, I don't believe this is something that Paul is doing in boasting, but seeing the deep need of this church that is so broken and in such disarray, he says, listen, there might be better people you could find, but I can say in honesty and sincerity that I'm living for the Lord and I'm trying to please Him. And if you don't know how to do it, just watch me and do what I'm doing to the best of your ability. Now, lest we foolishly charge Paul of being prideful, I want us to consider Paul's example. Consider his doctrinal example. I don't know that we can really uh, overstate the brilliance of Paul's mind. And Paul, I think, was a man that was naturally brilliant and intelligent. But I don't believe it was that natural brilliance and intelligence that made Paul's ministry so impactful. But rather it was that that mind, so well equipped to the mysteries of, of, of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, when it was illuminated by the Spirit of God and used of God to communicate deep, profound truths. I mean, there's things that Paul says. I'll read through the Pauline epistles and he'll just make like a statement, like just a passing statement about something. And I'll stop and look at it and say, whoa, there's a deep rabbit hole we could go down. You look at some of the statements that he makes in the book of Hebrews, because Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and you look at some of the things that he says matter-of-factly about Melchizedek, just matter-of-factly about, about what happened when the veil was rent in the temple, just matter-of-factly about Sinai, uh, you know, Sinai and what God was doing on the mountain there in Hebrews chapter 13. And it's apparent that there's much more in the mind and heart of Paul that God didn't see fit to disclose to us. But the things that the Word of God does communicate to us in the Pauline epistles have in many ways become the backbone of the church in this dispensation of grace. This is a man who took doctrine seriously. I'll tell you this, don't follow people that scoff at doctrine. Don't follow people that think doctrine is inconsequential. Don't follow people that think that what this Bible teaches doesn't matter. Now, they won't say it that way. They'll say it in this way. They'll say things like, well, as long as we're right about the gospel. 
Listen, you can be right about the gospel, and you better be right about the gospel. But you can be right about the gospel and wrong about a whole host of other things and make an absolute mess of your life. People say, well, you know, I'm not getting into that doctrine stuff. That causes division in church. No, people being undoctrinal can cause division in church. But actually, good biblical doctrine provides cohesiveness in the body of Christ. Because then it's not about your perspective or my perspective. It's not about your opinion or my opinion. It's not about your personality or my personality. But it's about the authority of what God's Word teaches. Paul, man, he was his doctrinal example was impeccable. Then I would say, number two, his ministerial example was something worth following. This is a man that, as he said, had spent all and been spent for the church at Corinth. This is a man that literally, I mean, there there is no distinction between Paul's private life and his ministry life from the moment that God knocks him off that horse uh, in, in the book of Acts. I mean, there's no compartmentalizing. And I'm not saying he didn't enjoy recreation. I'm not saying there weren't times that he had to come apart. I understand all that is true. But I'm saying Paul was not a part-time Christian. He was full-time in his service to the Lord. You say, well, preacher, I wish I could be full-time in ministry. Well, listen, you may not be able to be full-time in ministry. But that doesn't mean that your ministry can't be full-time. Doesn't mean that you can't pour your life out for the things of God and live for God and see every day as an opportunity and every person as a mission field. And Paul gave them an example of that. His ministry was impeccable, not only in its devotion, but in its ethics and its integrity. He was a man that was willing to work and labor with his own hands, lest he be chargeable unto other people. He was a man that he would sooner, he would sooner give the money back than my soul. He would sooner give the money back than keep it and ignore the ethics of the man. That's who Paul was. Paul's ministerial example was impeccable. But then I would say this, his personal example was impeccable. I don't think Paul was a sinless man. Paul didn't believe Paul was a sinless man. When he described himself in the book of Romans, he didn't describe himself as a sinless man. In fact, he described himself as being a deeply broken individual whom the gospel of the grace of God had transformed in a radical way. But he understood the importance of maintaining a personal testimony in the way that he lived and behaved. I'll tell you this, man. don't surround yourself with people that take themselves too seriously, but also don't surround yourself with people that don't take sin seriously. We don't have to take ourselves super seriously in life. We don't have to walk around pretending like we are just the most important, prestigious person to ever grace the face of the earth. But when you find somebody that thinks that sin and and, and uh, unrighteousness is funny, that's somebody you need to mark and avoid. There's nothing funny about sin. There's nothing funny about unrighteousness. There's nothing to revel in or rejoice in about brokenness and about sin and iniquity and the devil gaining control over people's lives. Paul was not that type of man. So we see Paul's example here. But then notice Paul's exhortation. He says, follow me, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That establishes two important things. I'm not going to beat these things to death. I'm going to mention them and move on because I've got more message to preach. But notice Paul's exhortation. He says this, rather than in false humility, suggesting that my life is not worthy to be followed as an example, which, by the way, while there may be a sort of faux humility in declaring that, real humility would say this, if my life can't be followed, I need to get alone with God and see what we need to do to fix that to make sure that my life can be followed. That's what true humility is. True humility is not merely saying, well, my life's a wreck, don't follow me. 
True humility is saying, man, there are people following me. So if my life is a wreck, I am not so important and I am not so enshrined that I can't let the Holy Ghost of God change me and transform me to make me someone that people could follow. And he teaches us this with this exhortation. Number one, it's biblical to follow. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's biblical to find people that are living for Christ and to look to their example and emulate their example, never exalting them above Christ, but looking to their life and saying, if they are succeeding as a Christian, I want to learn how to do that as well. He said this to the church at Philippi, brethren, be ye followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. By the way, that's how you know that Paul, this was not an ego trip. He says, you need to follow me, but hey, if you find other people doing what I'm doing, follow them. He's saying, just find somebody living for Christ, somebody that's serious about God, and befriend them and make them a mentor in your life. The church at Thessalonica, he made this comment when they got saved. He said, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And he exhorted in the book of Hebrews that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, he says it's biblical to follow. But then if it's biblical to follow, I would say this. Number two, it's beneficial to follow. You'll be helped by it. I'll be helped by it. I'll tell you this. I have been greatly helped. And there's people that will hurt you. But I've been greatly helped by people in my life who showed me what it looked like. They didn't just tell me what it would be like. They showed me what it looked like to live for Jesus Christ. Some of the people that have been the greatest blessings in my life were people that showed me I could live for Christ and enjoy my life. That living for Christ is not some march of misery, but that instead living for that, I can enjoy life. I can be who I am in Christ and have the personality God's created me for. And I can live for Jesus Christ. I can crucify self without losing who God has created me to be. And I can enjoy the life that God has provided for me and live for Jesus Christ. And, and, and that it can be done in this day. You can raise your kids for God in this day. You can keep your testimony in this day. You can stand on doctrine in this day. You can go to a Bible-believing church in this day. You can live for the Lord in this day. It can be done. You say, preacher, how do you know? Because I've seen people that have done it. And it's encouraged me greatly. It's beneficial to follow. So I would say this, that in this passage, there is a guiding principle. Then I want you to notice, number two, that there is a guarding principle. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, be followers of me, writ large, period, full stop, whatever I do. Instead, he qualifies his statement. He said, even as I also am of Christ. Now, there's two things we could say about Paul's phrasing at the end of of 1 Corinthians 11.1. One, and I think this has often been the understanding of this passage, and I think there's truth and substance here, not denigrating it, but the notion that Paul is saying, be followers of me when I'm following Christ. Paul did not say that, although I do think that the text is pregnant with that meaning as well. But what Paul's saying is this, the very same way that I have tried to stay in close fellowship with Christ, emulate his example and look to his leadership and guidance, he's saying you ought to do that with people in your life that are living for God. It's not talking about displacing the place and role of Christ in your life. That'd be anathema and blasphemy to the Apostle Paul. Well, what he is saying is this, that there are people that can show you how to live for Christ. In other words, he is limiting 
what he has said. And in this limitation, I would make this comment. There is a guarding principle. He says, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I live for Christ. Watch what I'm doing and compare it with what you know of Jesus Christ. And see in me a testimony of Christ. But if there ever comes a day that that's not true, feel perfect liberty to find somebody better to follow. I would say this, that this guarding principle is there that it might guard our consecration. Paul says, only follow me if I stay in Christ's footsteps. If I stray, then follow him. Don't follow me. You know when cults are born? When men deviate from truth and demand allegiance anyway. You know what an ism is? You know what an ite is? It's not someone that admires someone's teachings or writings or whatever it might be. But it's when a person confronted and faced with obvious truth will instead, out of loyalty and allegiance and, and sectarianship, will instead side with something they know to be untruth because of the pressure that they have felt to do so. That's when your life becomes dangerous. Is that biblical? Is it biblical that you follow any man irrespective of what he does? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's biblical that you follow any man irrespective of what they have done or do or will do or the direction they're going. Any more than I think it is biblical that you can look to yourself to be some guiding light and ultimate principle and standard in your life. I think the biblical mandate is this. God gives us people in our life that are examples that we should follow. If they deviate from Christ, then of course we deviate from them. Because the goal ultimately is not to be like them. The goal is ultimately to be like Christ. He says this, this will guard your consecration. People say, well, preacher, the problem with following men is they'll lead you astray. If you let them, they will. If you let them, they will. There's not a single one of us that has had somebody in our life that was impactful. And I've had people in my life that I wouldn't be who I was today without their testimony and what they did for Christ. And every one of them are flawed. Every one of them were sinners. Every one of them were broken. Every one of them disappointed me. And I had to make an adult decision in that moment. I could throw the baby out with the bathwater, get all bitter and angry and quit on church and quit on God and say, well, somebody disappointed me. How infantile that is. I got news for you. People are going to disappoint you all the time. If your whole worldview is going to crumble the moment somebody disappoints you, then it's only a matter of time before it crumbles. Because people are going to disappoint you. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but to whatever degree people might have expectations of you, you disappoint them as well. So instead, the adult thing to do is say this. If men have failed in my eyes, it's not been Christ that has failed. It's been them that has failed. And inasmuch as they can lead me to Christ, inasmuch as they can lead me in how to live for Christ, then there is value and, 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 and meaning and, and impact in their testimony and benefit for myself. But if they ever depart from that, there's no question to me, this thing's not a loyalty test. This thing is who can show me how to live for Christ and who loves him and who leads me to him. It's a way of guarding our consecration. But then Paul, I think, has another truth contained in this notion. He says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Saying when I'm following Christ, follow me. But if I quit following Christ and go a different direction, then I don't want you to keep following me. I want you to follow Christ. But there's another sense in which this is limiting. You say, well, preacher, what if a person doesn't go wrong? What if they just lay down? I've known lots of people that have done that. I've known lots of people that have lived for God and served God and then one day they just quit. 
Now, it wasn't out of nowhere. There were things lurking in their heart and things they'd allowed in their life. I'm not meaning to say it was random. But to the outward observer, it, it, it looked like they just quit on God. I've seen people when that happened. Uh, let's say it this way. I've seen people say, I go fishing. And people around them say, we also go with thee. Quit. Done. Out. Over. Not going to do it anymore. You know what Paul says? He says, there might come a day that I do that. Paul understood that he was as apt to be shipwrecked as anyone else. He warned against that. He said, I, 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 I keep under my body and bring it under subjection. Lest after I preach to others, I myself should be a castor. Paul understood he was as apt as anybody to fall and to fail. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if I quit following you, you keep walking. Don't quit. I've often said, I'll say it again tonight for posterity's sake. If I get out here and get messed up, laying in sin's ditch somewhere, I hope Wall Ridge Baptist Church weeps, cries, prays over me, then gets up, finds somebody that loves God, and goes on for Jesus Christ. I hope it wouldn't paralyze you. I hope it wouldn't stop or stall you. I hope that whatever happens in me, I hope at the end of the day, and I hope I am an example to the flock. I hope I'm an ensample to the flock. I, I hope that there's people can look at me and see it's possible to live for Jesus Christ. But if there comes a day where you can't see that in my life, don't quit on God. If I ever quit walking, you keep walking. If I ever quit on Him, you don't quit on Him. So there's a guarding principle. And then I would say this finally, what does that mean for us? Now, there's two ways to look at this. There is Paul himself giving this exhortation. Then there is the church at Corinth that is receiving this exhortation. And this statement bestows upon both of them a responsibility. I would say it this way, that there is a guiding principle in this passage. Paul says, you can follow my life and I will guide you in living for Christ. There's a guarding principle. Paul says, if I ever am not leading you or pointing you to Christ, then by all means, go with Christ. Don't go with me. Instead, follow him. But then the very nature of this statement creates a governing principle in our lives. In other words, what does that demand of us? What does it require of us? Truth always beckons a response. We all have a responsibility to respond to truth in an appropriate way. So if I know that's true, it's all good and well to say, well, you know, preacher, I ain't never going to follow a man. Well, don't follow him into hell and don't follow him into sin. But it might be biblical for God to give you people in your life that can be an example. And if they're leading you to Christ, follow them there. None of us would be here tonight. Listen, I, when I got saved, nobody was in the room leading me. Nobody was reading the, the Bible to me. I, I'd grown up under Bible preaching. I knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'd already been led through the gospel on hundreds of occasions. And you're saved tonight because a man led you to Christ. It may have not happened in that explicit of a way, but somebody told you about Jesus Christ. So we could say, well, preacher, I ain't never going to follow nobody. Well... You might find your life is the poorer for it. I would say it this way. When we read this passage, we learn this. There is a responsibility to follow biblical counsel, truth, teaching, and biblical example. We're going to be held accountable for the examples we've had in our lives. That's a terrifying thought. I have a responsibility. Listen, you say, well, preacher, nobody told me. Well, sometimes they don't have to tell you. Sometimes they can show you. You're going to be accountable for the examples you've seen in your life. Say, well, preacher, I never could have done what they did. You might could have if you had tried. 
And it might be one day you'll have to answer to God why God set an example before you in your life. I'm not speaking of me. I may not be speaking of anybody that you'd ever know or think or consider of. But undoubtedly in all of our lives, God has put people set as an example for us that we might learn what it is to follow Christ. We won't just be held accountable for the sermons we've heard. We'll be held accountable for the sermons we've seen. The lives that have led us in the truth of God's word. There's responsibility to follow biblical example. And you and I cannot proclaim. I I believe I can say this with, with the authority of God's word and the authority and testimony of history and experience. We have lived in a time where we have not been impoverished concerning biblical examples. We can sit around and lament all day long how wicked and rotten the world is, but we'd have to acknowledge that there's been some giants of the faith that have lived in our lifetime, men that we've been able to see that have stood for Christ and done something for God, and we'll have have to give an account for what we've done with that example. I would say there's a responsibility to follow. But then I wonder what Paul did with this. Now, undoubtedly, Paul had people in his life that encouraged him in the Lord. But Paul is writing this not as the man that is following, but as the man that is being followed. And while I don't mean to deviate from the clear text of Scripture in any way, I do think we can make a reasonable assumption here that Paul, Paul probably felt heavily the responsibility that it was to have men following him. I would say this, this governing principle, it means this, there's a responsibility to follow. But number two, and lastly, there's a responsibility to be followable. People are going to follow us. People are going to watch us. There's going to be people that, to them, Christianity looks like your life. That's what they think of. When they think of a person that's a Christian, they're going to think about your life. The level of your devotion, the level of your separation. That's what they're going to think is Christianity. One of the things that's always been interesting to me, I, I you know, I, I was raised uh, in, a, in a Christian school and, and raised in a very good and godly home. And, you know, I mean, my parents, I mean, I know what they are today, but back then, you know, they were, they really lived for the Lord. And I was raised in a good home. And when you're raised in a good home, one of the propaganda uh, messages that the world tells you all the time is how imprisoned you are, how limited you are, because you grew up in a home with standards. And you'll often be told things like, well, I, you know, you were just grow, you grew up, you didn't have no choice, you just had to live that way. That's funny, man. We got into a lot of trouble as kids for kids that didn't have no choice. We sure got away with a lot. I mean, one of these days we get to heaven, mom and dad, they got the mind of God. They're going to be shocked at the things we got away with that they've never found out about. For kids that didn't have no choice, we sure got into a lot of trouble. We sure got away with a lot of things. You know who I think of as young people that grow up and don't have any choice in life is young people that grow up in homes where sin is normalized. And all they know is a drunkard. And all they know is abuse. And all they know is anger. And all they know is godlessness and deadness. You see, funny thing about it, growing up in the father's house, I still heard about the far country. But I bet you them folks down in the far country had never heard a thing about the father's house. You really want to give your kids choices? Raise them in a biblical godly home. 
They'll have choices. See, it's kind of like what we started talking about tonight. If the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. I, I pastored long enough, and I've been around God's people long enough to know this. P- young people raised with, with right standards can still go wrong. But it's very rare, apart from just a transformative work of the Holy Ghost in their life and a collision with Calvary, that a young person that is raised in depravity and degeneracy grows up to just be a respectable person. It takes the gospel to transform them. In other words, the greatest choice that you give to your children is to be followable. To show them there's a better way. There's a better way. You ain't got to live this way. You ain't got to go and do what the world does, man. You, you, you don't listen. You don't have to walk down the aisle with a, with a heart and head full of regrets and bad memories. You don't have to sit there and, and be ashamed and embarrassed to parent your kids because of all the nonsense that you got into as a young person. Uh, listen, you don't have to have a marriage that's nothing but fighting and, and roiling and boiling and chaos and conflict and anger all the time. There's a better way. Preacher, how do you know there's a better way? Cause I've seen people live a better way. I have a responsibility to make sure I'm living in such a way that my kids can look at my life and say, well, you can live for Christ and enjoy life. You can live for Christ and be happy. You can live for Christ and be a real person. You ain't got to be fake like a lot of these people. You, you can be real. That's okay. That's all right. God don't expect you to be perfect, uh, but he does expect you to be devoted and consecrated. And I can, through my example, teach my wife, my sons, I hope our church family, my friends, but beyond that, I can look also in my life and see people whom God has used to teach me those very same things. To preacher, you needed that? Yeah, and you do too. We all do. So the question is this, are we following where we should follow? And are we being followable to those that are following us? Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come and play. and I just want you to have perfect liberty. If the Lord's done something in your heart this evening, to respond to him in obedience. Let him have his will, his way in your heart. I understand this is not a popular message in, in modern Christianity. I understand there's a lot of <laughs> modern Christian culture that would turn its nose up at it. But Paul said we ought to be followers. We ought to be followers. Your life and my life will be helped by looking to godly examples and desiring for the Lord to use us in the lives of others. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus who ask it in his name.